Hello, Mark. Hello, Joe. How are things? Well, things are, you know, we're approaching um, Christmas as we record this, so it's a very exciting time. It'll probably be after Christmas by the time it airs, but yeah. Yeah, but it won't be that long after yeah. Christmas. People, will, they'll still be in the Christmas spirit, won't they? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah, they'll be, uh, you know, taking their gifts back or whatever. So <laughs> I have right. a question. I do have a question. It's just, it's a, it's, it's not related to Christmas, but I think it is related to what we're talking about today. Okay. When was the last time you went to a concert or a musical event? <laughs> so glad you asked. <laughs> I actually went last night. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, my wife and I have been hitting that out of the park since oh. we moved to uh, Moncton, New Brunswick. This is like a mecca. This is like Moncton in the Riverview area. This part of New Brunswick is um, one of the world's best kept secrets, I think, because there's like three excellent music venues um, within a 60 minute drive of our place, and everyone comes through here at one time or another. Mm. This past week. We saw Boney M, or at least the original lead singer of Boney M, and it was a great show. And then last night, I went to see one of my best friend's brother. He's a music teacher. His wife is a music teacher. All his kids are music teachers, and they threw a fundraising concert last night in um, the College of Piping in Somerset, Prince Edward Island, and they had a special guest, a fiddler, a multi-instrumentalist, and it was another fantastic show. So, yeah. Good for you. Yeah, that's me. What about you? Oh, you're doing way better than me. <laughs> I think it's okay. pre-pandemic. I, I actually am like racking my brains. I think it was Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. I saw them at um, the Aeolian Hall, which is a fabulous musical venue here in London, Ontario. And London used to be the same way as Moncton. It, because it was between you know Detroit and, and Toronto, everyone would stop here. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Did you say that was pre-pandemic that you went? I think that was pre-pandemic. Oh my yeah. God. You got to get yeah. out more, Mark. I, I do have to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we ask our uh, guest today? I, I was hoping. Yeah, we could. Yeah. Steve Rosen. Welcome to the podcast. Hey guys. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. I'm guessing you've seen lots of live music in your time. I've seen certainly hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of shows. <laughs> wow. As you guys are talking back and forth, I'm thinking... These pranksters here, they're going to ask me that same question. What's the last concert I saw? I'm going to wrap my brain. Man, I saw the Rival Sons, an amazing band. They did like a little, uh, it was more like a, an unplugged thing at the, like the Grammy Museum. That's a place I got here out in Hollywood. My greatest joy, man, when I first started writing was going to concerts, getting like free tickets. And getting good tickets, you know, man, and backstage passes, man, I live for that. Before we go any further, let's yeah, we, explain yeah. why we're talking about this uh, with you. So you're a music journalist. Can you tell us tell us about your career and, and what it is that you do? Gosh, uh, I'll try to give you the uh, capsule version here. I actually started writing for a high school newspaper. I had like a little entertainment column. Rather than write about scholastic activities, I thought I wanted to write about music. I used to do like live reviews. I'd go to the whiskey um, you know, very famous club here on the Sunset Strip, the Troubadour, another very famous club, yeah. Golden Bear, which is another club south in Huntington Beach, sort of um, Southern California, you know, and I review shows and I do little reviews for the paper. And I love doing that, man. So uh, after high school, uh, I actually sort of started sending out reviews to magazines, trying to get things published, you know, got rejection slips from everybody, got a little thing printed in kind of a soft core porn 
it was it wasn't hardcore. I call it softcore porn because you would buy it like out of the vending machines. You know, you put in the quarter and pull your copy up, and you turn to the back page to look for the massage ads, phone numbers, right? You you weren't you weren't reading the LA Star to glean any insights into the uh, world of rock and roll music. <laughs> so I got a couple uh, stories printed there. Kept trying to freelance, get things printed. Wasn't have much luck. Went to UCLA, and that was a nightmare. Uh, couldn't stand it. Left after a year. Went to the UK and Europe, uh, doing like a backpack thing, like a you know on the road thing with my buddy. And I met some people over there. Uh, I actually did my first interviews there. The very first interview I ever did. This is probably late '72. Uh, was Joe Cocker. I brought my cassette player with me. I had one cassette. The next day or two days later, I was going to interview a band called Gentle Giant, a prog band. And thinking, well, I'm probably not going to be a writer for very long and my career's not going to last that long. I really don't need to keep my Joe Cocker interview. I'll just record over the same Joe Cocker interview. Oh, brother. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> fast forward, writing, you know, started writing for a guitar player in 73, wrote for them for about five years. That opened a lot of doors. Guitar player during the 70s, man was like the Bible. If you were a guitar player, you wanted to be a guitar player magazine. Hmm. Uh, Using that as sort of my calling card, uh, you know, I did some stuff for, you know, Cream and Circus and Musician Magazine, a bunch of magazines that kind of went by the wayside real quickly, Zoo World, various other publications. I was writing for some foreign magazines. So so just to cut to the chase, you have over the years interviewed dozens and dozens if not hundreds of recording artists and many many big names correct hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds everybody i mean <laughs> i mean i'm looking around i have pictures on my walls i mean acdc aerosmith zz top zappa stevie wonder purple the who zeppelin out in the road with zeppelin for 11 days the eagles uh, little feet uh, ronnie montrose Everybody. And you started posting YouTube videos with audio of these. And uh, and I was listening to um, your rather uh, testy interview with uh, Andy Summers Andy. of the police. Oh, man. Yeah. Not one of your nicer people. Um, he was a little, a little edgy, but um, amazing man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I put a bunch of that audio up on my YouTube uh, page, you know. Um, I mean, there's some, some pretty cool stuff there. Jeff Beck is up there. Uh, sadly, obviously That's cool. passed away. Yeah. Uh, Van Halen interviews are up there. But today you wanted to talk to us in particular about Eddie Van Halen. I did. So why are we uh, singling him out today? Because I wrote a book called Tone Chaser, Understanding Edward, my 26-year journey with Edward Van Halen, uh, which is a book I wrote back in 2020. I finished in 2021 after 14 long months of writing it about my 26-year friendship with Edward Van Halen. First met Edward in June 1977. They had just been signed, but but their first record was still eight months away. So uh, I met him at the Whiskey one night. I was there, and uh, I was introduced to him. And uh, we just, man, there was just, I don't know, this connection, uh, just this thing. You know, he loved Clapton. I loved Clapton. He loved Blackmore. I loved Blackmore, you know. And um, for the next 26 years, sort of on and off, I hung out with, you know, arguably the greatest guitar player uh, on the planet at the time. I wrote this book, uh, which I self-published, which is now in its third edition, sold out of the first and just sold out of the second edition. And I'm putting the third edition together as we speak. Uh, it's been unbelievable, man. The response has just been. Wow. Extraordinary. Well, congratulations. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So actually, yeah, I don't disagree that it's arguable that he's one of the greatest guitar players ever. 
what made him so different, do you think, or so special? He's probably most famously known for what has become known as tapping, where he would take his right hand and it would sort of be like an extension of his left fretting hand and he'd hit harmonics on the neck, which had been done before. Uh, Harvey Mandel did that. Uh, Jimmy Page did it in his Heartbreaker solo, but no one did it like Edward did. I mean, Edward truly made it a language all its own. But beyond that, he he just he he had a a sound that he defined as the brown sound um, <laughs> okay. that nobody else you know ever had, but everybody else wished they had. Um, Why did he call it the brown sound? Um, I think he called it that uh, because it was more organic. Brown is in nature, the trees, wood, as opposed to purple or blue or you know, polka dot red, you know, kind of a thing. Um, okay. And, and, and he just took all these influences, Clapton and uh, all these classic rock things and turned it into this language, this, this, this lexicon that, that no one had ever spoken before. On top of that, he built his own guitars. And essentially, it was taking a humbucker, a Gibson pickup, putting it in to a sort of like a Stratocaster body and he forever changed the landscape of custom guitars um i mean to this day you know you see a one pickup stratocaster and go oh that's ed's guitar you know he painted his guitars i mean he he provided the seeds for an entire you know custom guitar industry his songwriting his sense of harmony and 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 the way he orchestrated guitars he was just you know man just one of those unique diamonds that comes around once in a lifetime. Was he one of the first ones doing that, making their own guitars like that? Or is that sort of a tradition amongst, you know, the rock industry where there's people making their own guitars? Right. No, that's a good question. I actually write in the book, the only two people, look, people had built their own guitars. Sure. Yeah. They, they had to. They never played them because they were unplayable. And and I write yeah. in the book, and don't say, so the only two people I could think of who built their own guitars and played them was Les Paul, who is another, you know, renegade rebel, you know, Les is responsible for multi-tracking of guitars and and the Les Paul guitar, of course, Um, and Brian May, you know, his his famous red special guitar that he built with his father. You now have a lot of guitar players who have signature guitars. So Slash has a signature Les Paul, but he didn't build it. The guitar was built Hmm. by him by... I don't know, Gibson, or I'm not sure what company built that. But it was basically a guitar that, you know, Slash had a Les Paul, and maybe he, you know, removed the pickup and, and put in another type of pickup, or maybe changed the bridge, and this company made copies of that guitar. But it's not like Slash built that guitar. So, yeah, it's right. pretty now, rare to have somebody not only build a guitar, uh, but play it, you know. There were guys along the way that, that messed around and probably rewired pickups or tried things. But, but not to the extent uh, that Edward did and, and nobody having near the influence that he had. You, you call him Edward. Should we be referring to him as Edward as opposed to Eddie? I refer to him as Edward because the first time I met him, the, the times right after that, he always say, hey, Steve, Edward, you know, when he would call on the phone. Like I, like I didn't recognize his voice, you know, after the 80th time or something. <laughs> but he always referred to himself as Edward. And typically if somebody refers to himself as Edward, uh, I, I would assume he wanted to be called Edward. Alex, his brother, called him Ed, 
and fans would either call him Ed or Eddie, which he, um, I don't think he really cared for much. Because yeah, Eddie, he sounds like a little kid, you know. He says, but you know, I've got. <laughs> <laughs> and me, he was always Edward. It was a little more, um, I don't know, man, a little more sophisticated, a little more artistic. I get that. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now, did you know that? How early on did you know that you were dealing with someone who is special? He came over to my house. I was, I had a small little guest house in the Hollywood Hills. Actually, at this time, when I first met Ed, he was still living at home with his parents in Pasadena, which is like a little suburb about, I don't know, about 45 minutes uh, kind of east of L.A. Uh, so he would drive over from his parents' house, which is weird. I mean, he's, you know, doing tours of the world and he's living with his parents. I always thought that was pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> and I always had a couple of guitars in the house, you know, uh, and he'd walk in and I had the guitar set up in stands in my, my front room. And the first thing he did, first time he came over, you know, he walked in the house, you know, and uh, he walks over and he picks up the guitar. I mean, before he even sits down, first two things he would always do entering a room, light a cigarette, unless there was one already lit, and pick up a guitar. <laughs> then he'd take the cigarette and put it in the strings, you know, he'd wedge it between the strings up in the, up the headstock, you know. He would sit down and start playing the guitar, just start strumming the electric guitar acoustically. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting two feet away from him. I'd heard the record by then, uh, you know, and I, and I, and I knew what, a, what an amazing guitar player he was. But you're sitting two feet away from someone like that, and you're watching him, and you're watching his right hand, his picking hand, the way he's fretting and stuff. And I, and, and I just remember thinking over and over, oh, my God, this guy, he, he really is special. He is, he is somebody very unique. I mean, I, I sense that early on. People have asked, well, did you think he was going to be as big as he was? I, I, I didn't. I mean, I knew they were going to be successful. You know, I knew he would have a huge impact on guitar players. But I, I really don't think I ever had a sense of, of, you know, really who he would become if I'm really honest with everybody and myself. I, 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 never, I never thought that. Because yeah. they, were, they were, I mean, the band was huge oh, yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. First record comes out in 78. Then 79, yeah, so, so predominantly their catalog, yeah, is, is in the 80s. They were one of only, I don't know my exact number, eight or ten bands to have every record go diamond status. So there's gold, a gold record, which is 500,000. Diamond is like a million or 10 million. It's just, and they had like five of them in a row or eight. So we're talking the Beatles, Stones. I mean, we're talking the absolute hierarchy there was like five or six bands in the world and they were one of them they were the best-selling band on warner brothers i mean warner brothers had deep yeah. purple and Black sabbath and bonnie ray i mean they were extraordinarily successful yeah unbelievably successful now where did where does van halen the band sit on the pantheon for you that's a good question divorcing yourself from the fact that you were good friends with yeah. edward yeah man that's a good question so uh so my, my favorite bands in the world, I mean, the Beatles, that goes without saying. I mean, you, you know, but I, I'm sort of of the uh, classic rock era or maybe even a little before that, kind of that English, that English thing, you know, 65, 66 to 68, 69. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I love the Who, you know, Cream I loved, um, but I, then I loved the American bands, you know, Spirit, I thought were one of the most underrated bands of all time. I mean, Supertramp I loved. Um, I love Van Halen. You know, I, I, I don't know if I would put them in my top 10 records. I don't know if I should be saying that, but I mean, <laughs> that's, fair. That's, that's fine. 
I, I love Edward more than I love the band. I love his okay. writing and his guitar playing, you know. Uh, his riffs were, were amazing. You know, the band. <clears throat> okay, so you know, a question related to that then. Yeah, yeah. Was Van Halen, despite the name, was Van Halen the band, the right band for Edward Van Halen? Well, I just know. <laughs> That's a good question, Joe. I don't, yeah, man, yeah, it's a great question. There was something about the chemistry of those four guys that, yes, I don't think I don't think there could have been any other members of Van Halen. You know, famously, they go on and they get Sammy Hagar in the band to replace David Lee Roth, and they have a month a pretty monstrous career. But you've already got the history of six records before that. So the real mm-hmm. question is, if Sammy Hagar was a singer in the original band, you know, that, that's an impossible question to answer. Would they have been successful? Mm-hmm. I'm sure they would have. But then, you know, all those songs, assuming that Edward was writing the same riffs and presented them to Sammy, obviously all those songs would be different, right? They'd have different melodies and different lyrics. So who can say what that response would yeah, it's kind of yeah. uh, see we're science fiction guys, right? So this is uh, this is alternate history. This is like you swap house. Andy Summers <laughs> yeah. with Eddie Van Halen. So Eddie Van Halen's now in the police, and Andy Summers is in Van Halen. Ah. What happens? <laughs> yeah, there's a good one. I think we just invented a new game. There you go. Yeah. Well, this um, might be related then, because one of the songs you mentioned that you wanted to talk about was "Hear About It Later." Yeah. And I. I when I was listening to it, I was going because I don't know that it was would have been a song that I w- would have remembered, but I was listening to it thinking I see why he wants to talk about this song because yeah. guitar playing on it is amazing. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's not it, it's it's a deeper cut for sure. Yeah. Even on on uh, the Fair Warning record, yeah, most people would. Yeah, you know, I mean, I could have pulled the song off the first or second record, you know, or, or one of the covers which Edward hated doing. Yeah, I mean, Ed, Ed was a pretty. Um, he was pretty flexible in his guitar playing. He could sort of come mm-hmm. at you uh, in various ways. That song, uh, you, you're right, man. I, I just thought the guitar playing was, it's like if you're a guitar player, man, it's like everything you wanted to know about guitar playing in the one song, mm-hmm. you know. What makes Fair Warning, I, I think, such a remarkable record is it's the first record where Edward is sort of let loose in the studio. Up to that point, um, there was a minimum of overdubs on all the records. You know, I mean, he'd go in and typically the band would, 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 would record live, you know, so it's bass drums and guitar playing live. And if Ed broke into a solo, there was no rhythm guitar. He wouldn't go back and put rhythm guitars on or there weren't rhythm guitars put down mm-hmm. on the bass track. And then you go into a solo. It was as if they were performing live. But we get to Fair Warning and I think Ed wanted to flex his muscles. He took a lot more time. The songs are a lot more complex guitar-wise. You know, he orchestrates the parts and there's little bits flying in and out of verses and, and you can hear how he's building um, the verses and the songs, you know, um, and a lot of that happens and in, in, in hear about it later. Edward yeah, told me also, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you a specific question again about that song because I was listening to it thinking it could be that, that he just uh, put it in later, but it sounds like there's almost two guitars playing in places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. There's two rhythm guitars playing. I mean, there's the bass guitar too, but obviously, but it sounds like there's two guitars playing. And I'm like, is that that hammer on technique that he's doing there? Like that, that, that sort of harmonic technique that it's almost giving a rhythm guitar feeling while he's playing the the sick licks? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Is that what he did? Or did he play in a second track later? Probably a second track. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's yeah. So he, now he's just yeah, man. He's gone crazy, man. He's a he's a kid kid in a candy shop now. Um, and now, awesome. do you, do you think then that uh, so they didn't do the overdubs earlier because they wanted to be able to replicate the live sound? Um, I, I think that was a huge part of it. Ed Ed had never been in the studio prior to the first album. He did some demos with Gene Simmons uh, in New York. Gene said, "Yeah, okay, go in and, and do the basic track." And Ed go, went in there, and the band played exactly as if they were playing live. And, and Gene said, "No, no, no, don't do that. Don't don't break into your solo. Play the rhythm parts." And Ed didn't know what to do. So yes, oh, wow. a huge part of those first records with Ted Templeman, who produced those records. Ted produced the Doobie Brothers and tons of bands. Recognized that and said, "Yeah, man, just do what you do live." There are some tracks on the first record where Ed went back and put in a rhythm guitar. Uh, Jamie's crying is one. Ain't talking about love, and and the occasional track would show up on subsequent records. But for the most part, it, it was live. Yeah. So so here we are. You know, the Fair Warning record, all these records on the row. Ed is now a pro in the studio, and he says, "Hey, I want to do something. You know, guitar wise, I want to do a thing. You know." So he just spent hours and hours and days and days putting guitar parts on and laying guitar parts on. That seems to be a kind of a common evolution, you know, thinking of, I mean, that was the trajectory of the Beatles. It was the trajectory of uh, XTC. I, I'm thinking that it, it must be common that they get a little bit more ambitious as they go along. It is. Now, the thing is with, with XTC, I'm, I'm not quite certain about, um, although I love that band. Uh, but the Beatles, the reason that they did it is because they only had four tracks. So, right, so the four of them go in and do Love Me Do, and, you, you know, John Lennon can't play the, the harmonica part and play guitar, you know? I, I mean, it's it, he could, but it was a difficult thing. Yeah. So they literally have to, so they go in and John would play, you know, he's playing, da, 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 da. he's playing the rhythm, his rhythm guitar, right? And George is playing his little lead part, and Paul's playing bass, and, and Ringo drums. And then, you know, I, I mean, I'm guessing, that, uh, you know, John went back in and, and put the harmonica on. But then if they had like another guitar part, the engineer, and I think, I don't know if Jeff Emmerich was doing those very early, early records, would have to go back and it, it's called bouncing. So we take those four tracks, bounce them to one track, and now they had three more tracks. So the reason for them oh, sort of doing it that way is because they didn't have tracks. I don't think it was because they were used to playing it live a certain way or they were trying to reproduce things a certain way. Yes, now you get into uh, Revolver and Rubber Soul and, you know, obviously Sgt. Pepper. It's like, oh, my God, how are we going to recreate that live? I don't think they ever even gave a thought to that because I don't even know if they ever played any of those songs live. I think they don't no, think no, I don't think that was yeah. their interest. And just to finish the thought on XTC, that was uh, Andy Partridge's uh, stage fright kind of forced them into uh -huh. the... You know, oh, really? oh, okay. They were just well, doing studio work. And yeah. I have a question yeah. that really relates to this, and it might be a really stupid question, just showing my ignorance, but how did they handle it then when they're on tour? Because they don't they can't recreate the sound that they've created in the album, obviously. Did they, you mean uh, Van Halen? Yeah, Van Halen, yeah. Sorry, but yeah. I, I'm, oh, I'm still stuck with Van Halen. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean the, the thing is, you know, your ears if you're a if you're a big time fan of Van Halen, you know those songs pretty well. And even if there's not a rhythm guitar back there your ear kind of hears it. Fills it in. You know in, what I mean? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, the songs, yeah, the fair warning songs were, were certainly more difficult to perform live. But, you know, again, I, your ears were sort of 
creating that that second guitar or the you know and, and playing slide a couple of times if there was a missing slide guitar. Now you get to the 1984 record. Well, even though there were keyboards earlier, but 1984 is where keyboards right get huge and jump. That whole thing happened. Oh, and yeah, now yeah, how are you yeah. going to do that? Well, is he going to play it on guitar? He could have, but that wasn't going to work. So initially, Michael Anthony, the bass player, was going to play jump. Uh, was going to play the keyboards. And it was a little too difficult for Mike to do. So Ed played keyboards. So just back to uh, to Edward himself as a person. So you guys were were friends. Yeah. So tell us what he was like as a person and what, what kind of things did you guys talk about? And do. And do. All right. All right. I was I was writing for magazines at the time. So a lot of the conversations were interviews for the magazine. Uh, most famously, Guitar World. I wrote three cover stories on Edward for Guitar World, 84, 85, and 86, uh, besides a lot of other, you know, big feature stories with him. I wrote a lot of stories about Edward um, back during the day. So we'd sit down and, and Ed, you know, and uh, Guitar World wants a story, you know. So let's sit down and we do an interview. So those interviews were pretty, um, they, they were a little bit more straightforward. You know, they, they, they may have had a new record out. Uh, they were just got off tour. They had just done the Us Festival. Ed, what was the Us Festival like? Now, what was it like playing with those other metal bands? And Ed, what guitars were you bringing out? So a little bit more straightforward. What What was weird, what was odd, is that we had probably talked about those things off record or, you know, without the cassette player running mm-hmm. many times. So it's like I'm asking him questions I kind of knew the answers to. So I had to like pretend I'd never heard it before, and he had to pretend he had never told me before. And on top of that, being his friend, you know, I, I had to pretend or not pretend, but I had to pull back from that. I couldn't be his friend when I was talking to him. I had to be this interviewer, and he had to be the interviewee. You know, I was kind of full disclosure. Mark here is a journalist, so yeah, that's uh, that's when you have to say, you know, we're friends and. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I how I, I cover this, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I never came out and disclosed it to people reading. I mean, I think they probably knew that I kind of knew Edward, but I think that's also what they kind of really dug about the interviews because in my mind, and I've read a lot of interviews, of them, they did go deeper. I think Ed, Ed yeah. Edward did say things to me that he, that he wouldn't say. So it really was a pretty amazing thing, you know, but then we had a lot of conversations that weren't interviews. And let me back up for two minutes here. Yeah, in 1985, sure. I'm going to write Edward's authorized biography. I say, Edward, writers are going to come to you. They're going to want to write your life story. I want to be that person. And he said, yes, I can't think of anybody else to do that. You're the one. Signed little simple contracts. I began working on that book. I worked for about three years, interviewing people, talking to people. Um, he said to me, listen, you can record me anytime you want. Just turn the cassette player on. Him giving me license to do that, uh, a lot of times we'd be talking um, and we'd be at my pad or maybe I was up at up at his house, 5150, uh, up Coldwater Canyon, which is just sort of about eight minutes away from where I lived in uh, Laurel Canyon, the Hollywood Hills. And I would bring my cassette player and I just, I'd hit go, man. And we, we'd talk and sometimes he'd call late at night. And those conversations, the late night conversations and the kind of off the record, conversations were what I call the twilight tapes. And these were the amazing conversations. These are conversations about him talking about his family and 
you know, talking about getting along with Dave or, you know, being upset with Mike or, you know, a tour or, you know, and me, Ed, you know, I'm depressed, you know. And th- those were the hmm. remarkable conversations. And, and we would find these in your latest book? These are all in the book, which I, I put away. Not a word of those interviews was ever leaked. And in fact, if we were doing a normal interview, he might start talking about something and you go, hey, don't print that. And none of that ever got printed. I did right. put all that stuff out for the book because one, it was 17 years later and a lot of that stuff sort of became common knowledge. But secondly, uh, I, I believe that these, uh, these deeper conversations revealed so much about Kim as a human being and not just a musician. And, and, and I thought they were just remarkably insightful. So yes, they are all in the book. What did we do? Uh, I'd go over there most of the times he'd be playing guitar. I actually jammed with him several times. He actually came <laughs> over to my house and played on a couple of my songs. And I have those tapes. That was, oh my God, I'm watching him, you know, here listening to my songs. And he's like, he takes my guitar. And I'm over there with a buddy and we're recording, my, you know, a little Fustex four track in my front room. And he's starting to play, and I, I'm watching him, man, and and, I, and he's talking about how he's playing and how he's working stuff out. And, and I, man, I have this window into Edward Van Halen's brain, how he thinks as a songwriter and an orchestrator. It's the most unbelievable thing. A lot of people overlook Edward Van Halen as a songwriter. His riffs, his writing, oh, my God, they were so unique. So what did we do? We jammed. We got high. I did drugs with them, man. Uh, I got a little drunk. I didn't really drink because I was susceptible to migraine headaches. Man, if I looked at a bottle of, of beer, I, I, you know, I, I could get a headache. Uh, so I didn't really drink too much. But occasionally I drink because it's like, hey, Edward Van Halen's drinking. I got to drink. Peer pressure. Yeah, man. Yeah, we got high. And I got to tell you, man, they were some of the funnest times of my life. I, I'd be a liar if I said it wasn't. I love doing it with them. I think the difference is, and I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal or anything, nothing like that whatsoever. When I went home, I, I never did drugs at home. Um, yeah. I think when I left, Edward kept doing drugs. and But he was extraordinarily high-functioning. I mean, Ed would get high, and you really never knew. Ed would get drunk, and you really never knew. It was He just became more Edward-esque. He's just open. He was a happy – they were fun, fun times, man. Those those late night conversations are just such an amazing gift, and I think it's great that you put it into the book because then someone who's really interested in him as a person and a musician can can read your book and actually hear that stuff. It's great. Well, I really appreciate that, man. And you know, as I'm writing this and as I'm you know working on the book and I'm coming across these sections and hearing those interviews again because I never listened to them uh, since they've been recorded and some of them record recorded in you know. 84 and 85, 86, 87, and I'm writing the book in 2000. So we're talking about a fair number of years that passed, you know. So I'm listening to them, man, and I'm transported back to that moment. And I go, oh, my God, that was that conversation. But but as I'm writing that, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, th- this is really personal, man. Am, am I hurting somebody? Is Edward's family going to be embarrassed by this? You know, am I betraying something? Am I... You know, and, and at the end of the day, I go, no, man, it, I, it's none of those things. Because if I thought it was that for a second, I never would have included any of that. But it's yeah. precisely what you said, Mark, man. It, 
it revealed so much about the guy. And Edward Van Halen, the greatest guitar player in the world, he looked amazing. He had a beautiful wife and a big record deal and cars and guitars. And he got sad sometimes. And he had problems sometimes, you know, and like every other human being on this planet from the beginning of time. And I think that's what those conversations revealed. I, I wanted, I'm trying to get more of a sense of the man and your relationship with him. Did you ever get mad at him? I did. I did. Edward was extraordinarily honest. And I've, I've come to find out that people from the Netherlands are that way. I, uh -huh. I, I, I have no idea what it is, but I know another guy. And, you know, he'll say things. He loves the book. He, he's been so helpful to me, but he'll say things. And I'm going, why the fuck are you? That's the fucking <laughs> insult I've ever heard. And he, he that wasn't his. his, his um, it, it's a bluntness, his, isn't it? Exact yeah. blunt. So Edward, yeah. you know, oh, my God. <laughs> oh yeah yeah and, and, and actually edward changed and i try to explain why he changed I, I i was really never sure but edward changed he wasn't as nice a person and i don't know where that came from um Wait, when did he change yeah when did that happen i sensed it early 90s uh, by the mid 90s it was i really could sense it i don't know the band maybe was kind of in turmoil at that point. You know, they were on their third singer by then. And maybe there was some family things happening. Hmm. So it wasn't the fame because the fame had already happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it no, was. no, no. I don't think it was the pressure of fame or the lack of it. No, nothing like that. I, I'm not sure, but, but he used to say things to me that were even beyond being blunt. They were, they were meant to be hurtful. Um, and, that was, that wow. was pretty hard to take, yeah. And, and I, I try to explain that, and um, that's a difficult one. But even earlier on, you know, Edward said, "Yeah, man, you're the you're the balding guy with the glasses." Oh, that's great, and that's that's how you see me, you know. He says, "Well, you are." No, okay, you know. Yeah, but he was just he was just very honest. Or when, when he wanted to work, you know, when he was in you know music guitar mode, you know, he says, "Hey, man, I'm going to work now." And I go, "Okay." I, I got that, but it was always like, hey, man, great to see you. I'll see you later. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to work now, you know. But, yeah, he could be in, incredibly, incredible. Uh, so I, earlier I had mentioned your interview with uh, Andy Summers where he was a little brittle. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, and then Eddie was, was, was this common amongst the people that you associated with and interviewed and talked to in the music industry? I probably interviewed, let's call it a thousand guitar players. But, but let's lump in there bass players, keyboard players, singers, producers. I would say two or three percent were pretty nasty. They didn't want to do interviews. They were uh, sarcastic. They were short. You know, they one word answer. They were condescending, which just makes me insane. You can be rude, but condescending. Because I've sat yeah. there for three days, dude, and I've listened to your records, and don't make me think I'm I'm not saying something, you know. But but you know that that makes me crazy. But most of these people were were pretty amazing people. Um, yeah, I'll even name the guys who were assholes. Frank Zappa, he was not. <laughs> Todd Rundgren was nasty. Todd Rundgren, 
Oh yeah, yeah. well he was he was XTC's a producer and the, the famous um, sessions with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, incredibly gifted guy, uh, amazing songwriter, amazing singer, producer. But yeah, he was he was a little nasty. But um, does that matter? Because I mean, like, okay, so Skylarking is one of my favorite all time albums that he produced. Yeah. Does it matter that he was nasty? Do we do we care or do we just care about the work that these people? Uh, that's produce? a good. That's a good question. The fact that Frank Zappa wasn't a nice person that did that affect his record sales or concert ticket sales? I don't think it affected them one bit. I think the truth of it is, you know, most people would know that Frank Zappa wasn't a nice person. Unless I wrote about it in one of my stories or he was that way with another writer. You know what I mean? I probably just didn't publish those interviews when a guy was an asshole. Right. Does it detract from their creativity? You know, I won't listen to a Todd Rundgren song when it comes on the radio because of my experience, but I'm I'm one person. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Let's take it one step further. I, I don't want to get political here. But um, there are some musicians who are raging anti-Semites, um, and I think that has affected them really terribly. I certainly won't listen to their music. And these are extraordinarily creative people. And there's more than you think. So, yeah, I think if you take it to the extreme, I think it can affect their persona a- as an artist. But I think for the most part, people, people never know uh, that, you know. And I guess the question is, like, when we do know, do we divorce the art from the person? You know, like John Huston apparently was a big asshole, but he made some great movies, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So do we not know, watch man. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre uh, yeah. as a result? Yeah. Well, I mean, John Wayne was been one of the biggest movie stars in the world, man. And he was a racist and everything else. Walt Disney was an anti-Semite. Um, but, you know, it doesn't seem to affect the, peop- the amount of people going to Disneyland. So I don't know, man. I, huh. I suppose if it affects you personally in some way, Yeah. I say for the most part, I don't think people care. I, I want to, just to get back to the song that you picked, and I completely appreciate and respect why you picked that song for the guitar work in it and for Edward's contribution to that song. So it's some brilliant guitar work married to, if I may be so bold, rather banal lyrics. Yeah. What, what do you think of that? I was never a fan of Dave's lyrics. You know, the thing about Van Halen is they were a fun band. You know, I mean, they were a fun, hard rock band, you know, and, and people, they just got off on those lyrics, man. Beautiful girls and... Hot for teacher. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're not listening to them that's, for the lyrics. I yeah. listening to that yeah. today. I'm like, yeah, oh my God, lyrics. I've forgotten about this song. <laughs> I'm so glad I'd forgotten about this song. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's funny, you know, Hot for teacher, there's that one line that Dave has. It's like a it's like a throwaway line. It's a spoken line. He goes, "I don't feel tardy." That, that I is think that's yeah. an incredibly <laughs> smart line. Edwards Edwards' uh, music um, was sometimes not the easiest music to sing over, or to find a mm-hmm. lyric that that fit in. You know, the the meter and you get your rhyme uh, all, all sussed out there. So I give Dave all all credit for that. You know, and Edward did too. You know, um, the lyrics were Dave's, um, melodies were Dave's. And, um, and you, yeah. you can't argue right. with their success. I mean, holy cow. No. no. I mean, no. And they inspired a lot of other musicians too. A lot. They became really the, the blueprint for kind of that, that hard rock yeah, thing, man. that sound. Um, yeah. They really did. Yeah, and a lot of people look at Dave as like one of the greatest front men of all time. Yeah. You know? Hmm. I feel like asking you about uh, every uh, guitarist that uh, you've ever uh, – 
hung out with and uh, and interviewed, but we we don't have time for that. But just to to wrap up with with Eddie, so yeah, unfortunately, uh, Edward, 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 Edward. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> to wrap up with Edward, he um, so he passed uh, way too young, way. Uh, tragically, of uh, it was lung cancer, wasn't it? Lung cancer, and he had cancer of his tongue. Uh, yeah, it had migrated. It was it was pretty bad. Oh. Yeah. When, when's the last time you saw him? And what did you guys talk about? 2003 is the last time we spoke. Um, but I don't think I had seen him. Probably sometime in the late 90s. And by then, as I mentioned earlier, he had changed a lot. Typically, when I was going to interview Ed, I would just call him up. Ed, we need to do an interview for, with the guitar world. Ed, we need you to do an interview with Player Magazine, Japanese magazine. They go, yeah, come over or I'll come over, you know. So I call him and, and uh, I go, Ed, you know, and, and I could sense things were changing, but I was still uh, at, at a point where I could still call him. And I, you know, I call him up and go, Ed, you know, hey, man, we need you to do an interview. And he, and he, and he said, I'll call my manager. That was always our oh. standing joke. You know, oh, call my manager to set, him up, uh, set it up. You know, then we'd goof and go, yeah. And then say, yeah, come on over tomorrow. So that was a joke, you know. So I said, call my manager. And I start laughing. And he goes, no, really. And I think, oh, man, he's really being funny today. Oh. But I keep laughing, you know. And he goes, no, man, I'm serious. You know, and I, I don't want to give the book away. But oh, yeah, says, yeah, you know, don't, yeah, don't spoil your book. You know, he says something that's really broke my heart. So oh. it was really, ah. really terrible. And that was one of the last conversations. That was the last time I saw him. Uh, I saw him. And the last conversation I had with him in 2003 wasn't very uplifting either. Um, but uh, uh, okay, so so to finish on a um, on a positive question, note, then Joe. <laughs> <laughs> we we go for those questions, yeah, so the hard questions. Let's remember like the parts that were great. <laughs> what did tell us something? I, I like a cherished memory of your time with Edward. My God, you know. When he when he came over to my house at night and and played guitars on my songs, oh my God, um, you know, uh, uh, giving me the the um, permission to write his book initially back in '85 that was extraordinary. Just you know, dealing with my temperament, you know, you're around somebody so exceedingly gifted and successful. And you know you're never going to achieve that. And, I, and not in my wildest dreams, I would never have thought I could. But as a musician and songwriter, it's like you're around that and you think, my God, I, I, if I could just have a drop of that. So at times you get like jealous. And it can't even be jealousy because you're jealous of this. You're jealous of Da Vinci and John Steinbeck. I mean, they're beyond jealousy because you could never aspire to that, you know. And he would sense that, you know. And he could have said, you know, I'll talk to you. He never did that, man. He always said, hey, man, it's okay, man. You know, just keep working at it. And, you know, or if I was playing guitars with him, you know, and, and I was so terrified about playing some wrong note. I, I was never a horrible guitar player, but I wasn't a great guitar player. I was a good guitar player. But you're playing, you're playing guitar with Edward Van Halen, you know. It's like your fingers stiffen up, you know. It's like, how do I hold the guitar tip, you know. And, you know, I'm playing it. I'm afraid of playing something bad and him saying something which would just, like, crush me. He never did that, you know. Oh, and, and it's like he, he's, he's playing something, and I and 
I'd pick up my guitar, you know, or, or it, I was at his place. He'd put a guitar in my hand and we'd be playing guitars. You know, I'm trying to copy something he's doing, you know, and realizing it's ridiculous. And if I play something that was like halfway decent, he goes, yeah, that's it. You got it, man. That's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really who he was, man. Really was, and, and and if nothing else, I think it's just brave that you were playing with them. I mean, because exactly. I think a lot of people would just go, "No way, no way." Yeah, so good exactly. for you on that front too. Thank you, Mark. Any any final thoughts, questions? No, or? I just really I enjoyed I enjoyed hearing these stories so much, and uh, yeah, thank you for you know making me listen to Van Halen again all afternoon because I really did enjoy it. It's like it took me back. Steve Rosen, thank you very much for being on uh, our podcast, Recreative. Thank you, Steve. Oh, very welcome, guy. Love the questions. Great hang. Recreative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. Drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.